I wanted to tell some stories this afternoon, in particular about the Buddha's life, um, and really to offer the Buddha's life as a template. Um, so it's really less about the historical fact of you know, whatever occurred, and really touching into that place of um, where story can lead us into um, the metaphor and the mythological representation of what um, he represents to us even two and a half thousand years after his passing. And, you know, I just want to acknowledge that this may feel a little... um, uh, counterintuitive because in the in our invitations and our practice meetings we're constantly inviting you to drop below the story to you know to to not be in so involved in the in the storyline and also to acknowledge that storytelling is a very profound practice because the stories themselves can cross cultures, cross genders, cross class, orientations, all of our perceived differences, reaching into some possibility of a shared understanding, even when the experience itself is not shared. It really has the possibility of connecting individuals to a larger whole even when the story may be about separation or pain or suffering. Creating these bridges between life experiences without diminishing the individual's personal uniqueness or qualities. So we tell stories to begin to cross both internal and external borders that separate us from each other. So that when each of our stories become all of our stories, when our family stories become the stories of the universal family, that too is a practice of interconnection, non-identification, and emptiness. Non-identification is not just about a negation of self. It is about the infinite embrace of everyone. That, you know, that, that poem that I read, I don't know how many days ago, it seems like months ago, but becoming friends with infinity. And in that, in that both and, in that, non-identification and embrace of all. The Buddha not only offered his teachings, he offered his life. And so what I wanted to explore is what does the template of his life offer as a teaching in and of itself? So, you know, often our physical life Um, is divided into five different mm, stages or or, um, levels of of birth, childhood, coming to age, maturity and aging, and passing away. And likewise, the spiritual life can have five um, areas of development or growth that we move through. And these stages can be called the calling, the departure, the struggle, the awakening, and the return. That is true for all of the great stories in, in all cultures of the, um, of whether it's the great awakened beings or whether it's about deities or whether it's about ordinary lives, that each of us go through this cycle over and over again. And so each of us enter a calling for Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gautama, that's the name of the Buddha before he became awake. 
he lived in this palace of infinite uh, fulfillment. Um, every single need was met. Up until the age of 29, he was being prepared by his father to be the king with every um, um, wish to be fulfilled. And, um, and even his family had certain portents, like when Siddhartha was born, um, one of the soothsayers um, uh, predicted that he would become either the greatest king among humans or the greatest conqueror of suffering and desire. And his father um, had no idea what the second, you know, aspect was. So he prepared his son to become the greatest king among humans with every training. And, and as a prince, even with, with every need um, fulfilled, there is this story when he was um, about seven and um, the king took him to the plowing festival. So this is an agrarian society. And so the festival was about the king plowing with a, a plow that was um, uh, composed of solid gold. And, um, and so they all went. And, and Siddhartha's attendants actually left him unattended because they were watching the festival. And um, so Siddhartha was sitting under the shade of a tree and attains the first of the four stages of meditation. In later life, he narrates this incident to one of his disciples. I know that while my father was plowing, I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, aloof from the pleasure of the senses, aloof from the unskilled states of mind, entering into the first meditation, which is accompanied by initial thought, is born of aloofness and is rapturous and joyful. And while thereby abiding, I thought, could this be the way to awakening? So at the age of seven, he had an intuition that something was out there. But as with many of our callings, it got subsumed by our life, by our training, by our conditioning, by our family, by what the world expects us to be or do in the world. How was it for you? When did you feel your calling in this life? Because you did, otherwise you wouldn't be here. How early was that first intuition? Do you have a memory of how that arose? Where did you search for happiness before you came into practice? Did you too f try to find fulfillment through the satisfaction of desires and wants and whether it's material or relational or um, even spiritual? And how long did they provide you with that sense of satisfaction or happiness. And we don't hear the calling more than just once. We hear it over and over again. Before my awakening, while I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, the thought occurred to me, the household life is crowded, a dusty road, it isn't easy living in a home to lead the it isn't easy living in a home to lead the holy life that is totally perfect, totally pure, a polished shell. What if, having shaved off my hair and beard, putting on the ochre robe, were I to go forth into the home life from home life into homelessness? This is one of the phrases that repeats while Siddhartha is growing up. Has, was that your experience? 
So it's really not that, not, it's really to find out how does his life really reflect the life of all of humanity, that we have these questions, these, these, these yearnings of finding out who we really are. What is this life? And so it is said, like Mary Grace um, described last night, that at some point in time, he came upon these messengers. And in spite of the fact that his father totally protected his environment, he managed to go out into the, the city and, and, um, uh, and see someone who was aging. And he had never seen anybody who was old and infirm. And he asked his charioteer, uh, who, what is this? And his charioteer explained, this is how we all will be. This is how we all live in the world and will become elderly and infirm. And this disturbed him really deeply. And so he went back into the palace and the next time that he emerged, he happened to see someone who was ill and sick. And again, he had never seen um, any such being. And so he again, he asked his charioteer and his charioteer responded in the same way that all of us will be in this position at some point in time. And then he finally came across in his next emergence from the palace, a corpse, someone who had passed away. And this really shook him to the core. And he asked his charioteer and and again, his charioteer responded giving him that, that truth that is so, uh, that is so um, can be disorienting because it, uh, it is um, so final that all of us will be in that place. And then the last time he emerges from his palace, he sees in the distance a wandering mendicant in, in the ochre robes walking so peacefully, you know, across this, this barren landscape. And he has a sense, maybe all those intuitions were somehow leading somewhere that, that, that maybe that is where I can find some freedom. that call to awakening is, is really, in terms of the archetypical, the call to, to our destiny, where we are drawn in our life. And so, what was our call? What were our messengers? For some of us, you know, you have shared them in your practice uh, meetings around um, uh, really acute medical diagnoses or people who have passed away in your life or maybe life-threatening or near-life, near-death experiences yourself. What allowed you to re-look at your life in the way that Siddhartha re-looked at his life, the, the messages that the messengers offered? And sometimes these these messages aren't, you know, the huge um, earth-shattering events in our life. I remember, um, I think I was around nine, and I was living in a um, one of those Levittown, sort of Pete Seeger, ticky-tacky box suburbs of um, Philadelphia. And um, uh, my next-door neighbors were... Stephen, Burton, and Rachel. And uh, Rachel was the youngest. And uh, she was, if I was nine, she probably was about three or four. And uh, I remember this vividly, that one day I saw across the street, there was a, a group of maybe four or five older kids like me bullying her, you know, just taunting her. And so I went over and all I said was, I took Rachel's hand and all I said to this, this group of my peers, I said, what would it be like 
if someone were to do that to you? And they stopped. And so I took Rachel back to her house. And what I didn't know was that the mother and Stephen and Burton were looking outside the kitchen window at all of this. And, you know, they thanked me profusely and, and, and then they started going in on the other kids. I'm going to beat them up. I, you know, they, how dare they do this? And I just felt that this was not the way either. That there was something that was askew in this picture, but I couldn't figure it out at that point in time. And that image has always stayed with me around, around service and, and how to do it in such a way that, that didn't perpetuate any harm. So the Buddha came upon that fourth messenger, the mendicant, and sensed that, that that might be the path leading towards something that was different. And, and so he um, was nearly 30 and his father was um, preparing to install him as the new king to enthrone him. And, and the king took every precaution to prevent his son from, from leaving the palace because there was this intuition that he might. And so he mobilized all the gates to be protected and all the exits. And, and at that, this point in time, uh, Siddhartha and um, uh, Yos, um, Yosadara's son, uh, Siddhartha's wife, was, was just recently born. And this is the night of his departure. The next night was full moon. And when everything was quiet and still, Siddhartha again stood up by the open window. Mysterious voices were again irresistible. The devas in the sky and all the people on the earth were urging him to his mission. He could not resist his vocation any longer. The moonlight streaming over the marble floor showed him Yosadara sleeping soundly on their golden bed. He drew near, gazing at her exquisite face, asking himself, how can I leave her? Why should my innocent one suffer? He returned to the window and the persistent voices seemed louder than ever. His love for Yosadara impelled him to deafen his ears to their crying. He heard the voices of the devas say, O oh, Siddhartha, have you forgotten your mission? Notice how difficult it is for him to depart. Notice that this, the calling is not an easy call to answer. Did you not promise to find the great law which will give this sorrow-sick and death-stricken world peace? Backwards and forwards, he paced several times to the window. His soul was bent on the voices and he longed to leave the palace. Slowly, he walked up to the bed, looking at, at wife and child. Then the cry of suffering sounded once more in his ears and nearing the window, he listened once more to the voices of humanity which spoke to him of their misery. My poor, innocent Yosadara, I am leaving you tonight. Will you think me unkind? Our love has united us. The bond is strong. It will never break. My poor wife, I can foresee your suffering. It is, he is not immune to these relational ties, the, both the desire and the suffering. But Yosadara, this is the law of peace I am going to find. And if, if I succeed, we shall meet again, which they do. Love has been sweet in our lives, and this love shall never cease. Forgive your Siddhartha. And 33 gods descended from the sky 
and put all of the city's inhabitants into such a profound sleep that no sound whatsoever would awaken. And to be even safer, they held the, the horse's hooves of Siddhartha's horse in their hands to soften the pounding on the ground and help him jump over the wall palace. And that was his departure. Each time we go into retreat, there is this great departure from our life. You can feel it, whether you have close family or close friends or a job or obligations. You know, it's like saltwater taffy pulling apart, coming into, you know, even with your highest intentions, it's not easy. We depart from, and the reason it's not easy is because we depart from our habitual conditioning of the larger culture, of, of this unconsciousness towards greed, hatred, and delusion. How long did it take you to organize the time to come here and be in this community? When I went to Thailand for six months, it took me five years to get my affairs in order. <laughs> and part of it was, you know, organizing my family life. Part of it was organizing the finances. Part of it was getting myself into a frame of mind that, that I could, you know, ask for permission. You actually have to ask for permission from your parents and your family to ordain. That's actually part of the, the ordination process. So, I mean, I can't remember the last time I asked for permission from my parents for anything, <laughs> much less something this huge. And so preparing for the departure. The departure is, is a huge step into what Mary Grace was so beautifully describing as entering the unknown. Because that departure is the line between the known life and the unknown. It really it really tests where, what our possibilities and potentials are because so often we're planning for how our life will evolve or, 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 or come to be, how we think it will, how it should, how we need it to. And can you, can you feel in those phrases, if I live into what I know, that is such a narrow bandwidth because I really don't know much. And when I open up to the possibility of living into that which I don't know, what a far greater potential is available to me. All those possibilities. What was your shift from known to unknown, what was your place of departure? How many times has the question risen, what will this month be like? It almost already has been, so you, you know what it has been like, but while you were going through it, what will it be like? What will it be like when you return? How can I do this practice for so long? Can we really just get out of the way of this life that is calling to be lived and just experience the life itself? Can we get our thoughts, can we get our planning, can we get our need to know out of the way and just let the energy of this practice take us. So at a later time when I was still young, black-haired, endowed with the blessings of youth in the first stages of life, having shaved off my hair and beard, 
through, though my family wished otherwise and were grieving with tears on their faces, I put on the ochre robe and went forth from the home life into homelessness, which is the translated term of going forth. I also wanted to share the experience of the Buddha's wife, Yasadara, because I think that her experiences are typical too. The, uh, when we go and practice, we do not just practice for ourselves. We affect everybody around us. And I think that their relationship is archetypical of that, that, that he left all of this panoply of, of life that had been constructed for him and had a profound effect on her. You left resolved your mindset on being a Buddha. I too made a firm resolve to always be your wife. We made our joint resolves and you gave me your hand. Why then do you leave me today without a word? We were first born in the animal world as deer. Since that life, we too have never been apart. Every samsaric birth, I was always your consort. Why then in this life did you go leaving me alone? You begin to feel her pain over lifetimes. Once we went out as ascetics together in the forest, we happily carried our two children in our arms. We lived in two dwellings separate but in the same forest. Why have you left me alone now? What have I done? With full awareness, I too made every effort by the power of our resolve. We were always to be together with our joined hands. We made all of our gifts together. Why then did you leave me, Lord, my, my Lord, without one word? I never kept a secret from you ever. I never let you be troubled, not me, Yosadara. I, once so blessed, weep now inconsolably inconsolably, woman of a thousand virtues, I am your, your, your Yosadara. Your cause was Buddhahood. I sensed the signs, yet I came as your wife every time. Now, let meditation never leave my mind. That's the shift. May all the forest fruits turn sweet for you. May men surround you as bees do flower, uh, flower. May the sun dim his scorching rays for you. May the gods create shelter for you as you walk. My Lord no longer hears my sad laments. I don't see my golden, my gold-hued Lord even in my dreams. Now I too vow to renounce all worldly pleasures. Though he has left me, I'll abide by the moral rules, which means that she has taken his life on. My heavy grief I'll bear, however hard. Like the air around me, I will think only of my Lord to become an arhant unswervingly. I'll try till I set my eyes on him again. He, she went through her own practice, her own departure, her own renunciation. And she became an arhant, and that's how they met later in the story. Both the Buddha's path and Yasodhara's path to freedom is through suffering, not around it. So you can even feel from your own experience in life that you've lived that our path towards less suffering is often through more of it, not less. It's not a linear arithmetic process that we go through. The important, this is from Charles Dubois, uh, a French 
um, literist. The important thing is this, to be able at any moment to sacrifice what we are for what we could become. Letting go of our ideas of our, what our life should be in order to really directly experience the life that's calling us. And in the territory of this great struggle that emerges from the departure, so we struggle. You can feel how the Buddha and Yasadara struggled. And we'll talk about the Buddha's struggle later as well. In this territory of the unknown, where, not, where there is no one that can guide us except our own practice. Of course, fear is going to arise. Of course, that is so understandable. And even for the Buddha, fear arose in, in the struggle itself. So in his, in his six years of searching for where freedom lied, lies, um, he went through many teachers, he went through many places, and he talks about um, how in many of these places fear arose, especially in the, in the, in the depths of the night in, in, um, in the forests that he was in. I dwelt in such fear-inspiring abodes as these orchard shrines, woodland shrines, and tree shrines, which make the hair stand up. And while I dwelt there, a deer would approach me, or a peacock would knock off a branch, or the wind would rustle the leaves, and then I thought, surely this is fear and dread coming. I thought, why do I dwell in constant expectation of the fear and dread? Why not subdue the fear and dread while maintaining the posture that I'm in when it comes to me? Why not explore the fear and dread? This is the invitation when the fear and dread arises in our retreat. And while I walked, the fear and dread came upon me, but I neither stood nor sat down till I had subdued that fear and dread. While I stood, the fear and dread came upon me, but I neither walked nor sat down nor lay down till I subdued that fear and dread. My first long retreats, and sometimes my retreats still have this aspect of fear, but especially in my earlier long retreats, um, I had all these images of death that came up, whether it was in my dreams and um, you know, I don't know about you, but I tend to be this drama queen. So I remember writing these letters that I never sent. And th- th- these were my last testaments. You know, because I felt, I, I felt the walls coming in. I felt, I felt um, it was like I was feeling claustrophobic on an existential level, that there was no way out. And really, there wasn't. There was nothing to do, nowhere to go. And it just felt like I couldn't stand it. And yet this transformational work is about a rebirth. It's about transformation, which necessarily means there's some kind of passing away or death that is occurring. So no wonder those images come up. No wonder the fear comes up. I remember when um, I ordained and Stephen uh, came over for the ordination, offered the robes, and that was, you know, it was just so... um, I'm not sure I could have done it without someone from home being there because it was such a foreign experience. And and so then they shaved, I had really long hair at the time, so they shaved the head, which is another story in itself. And I remember vividly him driving away 
I was standing there in my robes on this on this dirt road, and Catherine and Tanat were driving him to the airport, and he was leaving, and I felt as if I was suffocating, because that was the last piece of this Western life that was leaving, and the walls were coming in, and I and fear just was part of that first couple of weeks. And it is such a deep practice because when that arises, like when that arose when my father was passing, I said to myself, I've been here before. I have felt this before. And I experienced it differently. And I know that I will experience it again. Thomas Merton, who was very much aligned with the Dharma, um, uh, who uh, practiced out of the Gethsemane uh, Monastery in um, the Midwest, wrote, Prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. In those darkest places is where our practice comes alive. And so the Buddha, the Buddha to be, went through all these struggles with different teachers. And um, and didn't find what he was looking for. How many versions of that have we gone through? Trying to find the door into our experience of freedom. His final struggle was his determination to sit underneath the Bodhi tree and not to arise until he was fully awake. And so Mara, the, uh, the tempter, the distraction we have, and we can feel our own Maras. What, who are our Maras? What are our Maras? Began tormenting him because... Uh, uh, he knew that the Buddha had the possibility to be free from his, from his, um, uh, from his grasp. And so what, what is described is, is that Mara amassed his unimaginable forces and armies of destruction to attack the future Buddha, throwing maelstroms of tornadoes and torrential downpours to wash away and drown the meditating prince but the floods did not dampen him so much as a dewdrop and the edges of his robes were not even ruffled. There were showers of rocks and the the size of mountain peaks, of hot coals, of every conceivable destructive weapon, yet they all were transformed into celestial flowers that fell upon his feet. After nine such unsuccessful attempts to unseat the future Buddha, the enraged Mara gathered his army of hundreds of thousands and demanded of the Buddha-to-be, get out of that seat. You are nothing. You are nobody. That seat belongs to me and to me alone. These are my witnesses. And a deafening roar rose up from the armies. Yes, we are his witnesses. How many times has that happened to us when we are told that we do not belong in this life or that we tell ourselves that we don't belong in this life or we don't deserve to be who we are, even in subtle ways like, I can't do this. Who else can do it except us? Who else can live this life except this person? 
And you, dear prince, sit alone. Who is your witness? And the prince, close to his liberation, undisturbed by any obstacle created by Mara, reached down with the simplest gesture, with the greatest of ease, to touch the ground with the middle finger of his right hand. This movement represented in so many statues. That is the moment that the Buddha called on the Earth Mother to witness his inalienable right to his place in the world. And so brilliant was the power of the Mother Goddess that when she appeared, Mara and all of his armies were dispelled into all corners of the universe. What have been your maelstroms in this retreat? What have been your, who have been your allies? Even the Buddha actually didn't do it alone. That actually is quite amazing to me. So the Buddha's struggle took six plus years. It wasn't an immediate process, this process of enlightenment. So after the, the, um, the hosts of Mara was, were dispersed, um, the Bodhisattva sat underneath the tree for th- what is called the three watches of the night. And he saw the countless births and rebirths. He saw the, um, the unfolding of the, f- of the Four Noble Truths and dependent origination. And he saw the ending of the cycle of suffering. And at the moment of dawn, when the morning star was appearing in the sky, his mind realized the deepest, most complete illumination. I wandered through rounds of countless births, seeking but not finding the builder of this house. Sorrowful indeed is birth again and again. O house builder, you have now been seen. You shall build the house no longer. All your rafters have been broken, your ridge pole shattered. My mind is attained to unconditional freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. Whether we believe that full awakening or enlightenment is possible for us or not, each insight that arises for us, each opening into wisdom and compassion is part of this taste of ultimate freedom that the Buddha is sharing with us. Each moment of awakening, whether it's small or large, is great, is part of this great path. And as Tsokni Rinpoche has said over and over in his teachings, small moments many times, We weave these small moments many times into a flow of freedom. And you have had scores, if not hundreds of insights in this retreat. Those those moments which the Buddha also experienced. Some of them may have been these dramatic ahas, you know, patterns of childhood or the nature of anger or really the nature of this present moment. But I would dare say that most of them are pretty ordinary. Is that all? Might be the response. I remember, you know, um, sitting out there there's a, I don't know if the tree is there anymore, but um, it's, it was the first time that Spirit Rock did their two-month retreat. Mary Grace and, and Sylvia were teachers on it. But my teacher was Eugene Cash at the time. And I remember spending 15 minutes describing how a leaf just fell and how, you know, in that moment, you know, impermanence and dukkha. And, and, and I can't necessarily remember that insight precisely. But I remember spending, you know, the entire practice meeting talking about a leaf. (laughs) 
it seems so mundane and yet it was so meaningful. And as with all journeys, there's a return. You may be feeling it. Sati, mindfulness. Part of that, the meaning of that Pali word is remembering, remembering, which is to bring parts back into the whole. And this is the mindfulness practice. Part of it is the return. That your retreat and your life are not separate. There is no separation when you practice in retreat and when you practice in the world. As Heather was talking about cycles, this is one of the many cycles that we go through. Marcel Proust wrote, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. That's what we, that's what we begin to learn, is to be able to see through new eyes. So the return of the Buddha, in terms of his path, he sat and, and meditated for, it depends on your, the tradition that you're reading, whether it's seven days or seven weeks. And he actually didn't know if he was going to return to the world because things were pretty good. And why should he return? And you may feel this yourself in terms of, God, it's so complicated out there. What am I going to go back to? And so he really actually had to be convinced to come back and teach. He said, this Dhamma that I have attained is profound and hard to see, hard to discover. It is the most peaceful and superior goal of all, not attainable by mere rationalizations um, for the wise to experience. But this generation, I think this is so interesting. He's saying this generation, meaning that generation back then, but it's so applicable for this generation right now. But this generation relies on attachment relishes attachment, delights in attachment. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth. That is to say, specific conditionality depending arising. And it is hard to see this truth, that is to say, stilling all the formations, relinquishing of the essentials of existence, the exhaustion of craving, the fading of lust, the cessation. And if I taught the Dhamma to others, if I taught the Dhamma, others would not understand me and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. <laughs> I think that's really interesting. He had his doubts. And thus, his mind favored inaction and not teaching the Dhamma. So one of the, the devas from the Brahmin world came down to convince him and pleaded with him. And as in the stories that you may have read around the Buddha, he asked him three times. And at the, third, at the end of the third time, the Blessed One, out of compassion for all beings, surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. And he saw beings with little dust on their eyes and beings with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties and dull faculties, with good qualities and bad qualities, easy to teach and hard to teach, some who dwelt seeing fear in the other world and blame as well. When he, see, when he saw this, he replied, wide open are the doors to the deathless. Let those who hear show faith. If I was minded not to tell the sublime Dhamma I know, it was that I saw vexation in the telling. So, he conceded, and that was the beginning of the return, his 45-year return into basically service. So 
that also shows me that this practice is not a passive practice. You don't practice for your personal attainment and enlightenment. You practice so that you can do our part in ending suffering for all beings. I think we have referred to that this morning. So the last story that I want to share with you is is a weaving of stories in more of a contemporary fashion, if I haven't really to share how how this practice, this cycle, this journey is compounded by the journey of all of us and makes it into that great mystery that Mary Grace was 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 um, describing. So this is I first heard this from um, a talk that Paul Hawken um, gave, but uh, and I've sort of added some some aspects to it. But it's also written in his book Blessed Unrest. So you know who Ralph Wald, Waldo Emerson was. He was this essayist and philosopher and uh, in the early 1800s very deep thinker who was really deeply affected by his uh, first wife's death in, with, from tuberculosis, maybe one of his messengers. And he actually explored Eastern spirituality and created the whole transcendental movement in the t- at that time. He met Henry David Thoreau in 1837. And in 1844, in Emerson's literary journal, The Dial, Thoreau does the first translation of a Buddhist sutra published in English. At some point, a little later, Emerson suggested to Thoreau, or asked Thoreau, do you keep a journal? And Thoreau asked, what's that? So... Emerson said, you write, you know, you do, you do it probably, even though we've encouraged you not to. But, <laughs> but <laughs> it comes from a great lineage of Emerson and Thoreau. So, um, so at, on that day, Thoreau started writing a journal. 7,000 pages later, um, really, his first journal was October 22nd, 1837, and it, and it said, what are you doing now? Nine years later, one of the journal entries describes being arrested for not paying the, his tax. Thoreau previously didn't pay the tax because African Americans and the poor could not vote. But this year, he didn't pay the tax because he was against the war um, uh, he was against the war on Mexico. So he was a tax resistor. Eighteen months later, in 1848, he delivered a lecture on this experience of incarceration. The legend has it that Emerson visited Thoreau in the jail and said, what are you doing in there? And Thoreau said, what are you doing out there? <laughs> and so he wrote... What, is, what was called the rights and duties of the individual in relationship to government, published as resistance to civil government. Follow, just bear with me on this, stories, on this story. So he died. Thoreau died. A couple of years later, some anonymous publisher, nobody knows who he is, decides to republish Thoreau's work and rename it. We don't know why, but it's called, he renamed it Civil Disobedience. It was the first time that phrase had ever been coined. Okay, 50 years later. In 1906, Gandhi was at the forefront of the nonviolent resistance to apartheid in South Africa. He was, his first arrest was in 1908. 
And one of the t- books he, took, he takes to jail was the Thoreau pamphlet on civil disobedience. And he took it so that, quote, he could find arguments in favor for our struggle. Gandhi took civil disobedience and renamed it civil resistance. You know the legacy of Gandhi, of course. Next cycle, 50 years later. Bayard Rustin, a gay African-American, went to India to study nonviolence the year Gandhi was assassinated. Being gay, it was dangerous to go into the Deep South. But in 1955-56 was when the Montgomery bus boycotts began and Dr. Martin Luther King's house was bombed. So Rustin took his leave from um, his job to advise Dr. King on Gandhian tactics of nonviolence. He writes, this is according to Rustin, I think it's fair to say that Dr. King's view of nonviolent tactics was almost non-existent when the boycott began. In other words, Dr. King was permitting himself and his children and his home to be protected by guns. Rustin convinced King to abandon the armed protection and introduced him to Glenn Smiley, a Methodist minister who studied nonviolence. Smiley asked Dr. King if he knew about Gandhi and gave Dr. King Gandhi's autobiography, Thoreau's Civil Disobedience, (coughs) and a book called The Power of Nonviolence by Richard Gregg. Dr. King identifies these as the three most important works that influenced him. And we know the legacy of Dr. King. Fifty years later, one more cycle. Occupy Oakland arises. You may be, have been part of it. You may hear of it. And one of the most contentious areas within that movement is the diversity of tactics. Is, is, um, is whether, um, whether it is skillful only to depend on one form of tactics, whether it's violent or nonviolent. It kind of seemed as if the, the, the collective knowledge of nonviolence was beginning to fray. So through the, um, the advocacy of a white Dharma practitioner in downtown Oakland, Uh, the East Bay Meditation Center brought an Asian-American trainer of Kingian nonviolent tactics to begin to offer these trainings again in a new world. So I want to connect these dots in reverse. A white Dharma practitioner advocating for an Asian-American who's training nonviolence from the life of an African-American leader who learned the real-life examples modeled by an Indian pacifist who manifested the thoughts of an earlier dissident environmentalist who was inspired by a colonial American spiritualist in the teachings of the Buddha. (laughs) How wondrously are we connected. And this cycle is 50 years. Who knows what the other cycles are? Who knows what the other cycles we've lost to history? You know, though that, you know, it, of course we are these infinitesimal organisms in this life. In this vastness that, that transcends our, even our ability to be all in awe of it. We have no idea. And yet, that just because we are small and tiny doesn't mean that we're inconsequential or insubstantial. We are substantial, consequential contributors 
to this path towards freedom. Just like that anonymous publisher who just decided to change the name of the, of the booklet. Our archetypical journeys weave in and out of each other with a beauty that we don't need to understand or even comprehend. This is the great mystery. This is the great mystery of the great journey. And this journey is really the human journey through suffering. That's the expansiveness of our practice. This is really, truly worth feeling in your bones. Thanks for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.